to the Fallon Forum, where we bring you progressive voices and civil dialogue from across the political divide. This is Ed Fallon, your host, and we're coming to you from the heart of America's heartland, Des Moines, Iowa. Before I give you the rundown on today's program, let's thank some of our local small business partners, including Gateway Marketing Cafe. Uh, thanks to uh, Gateway Marketing Cafe, that's our locally owned grocery store and specialty food store. You can order groceries online now, and the Gateway team will bring them to you curbside. Uh, Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and take-out service seven days a week, while the, also catering, of course, and uh, local and floral services are available as well. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. Thanks also to Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has been caring for all creatures, great and small, for over 30 years. Uh, learn more at Story County Veterinary Clinic's Facebook page, or just give Kim Holding a call at 515-232-8766. All right, so we're going to be talking later in the program about um, corporations, how it's time to raise their taxes. Um, also, we're going to be talking about the coronavirus with the uh, subtext, get over it. Yeah. Uh, and we'll be talking about the courts. Uh, you know, Biden has this very narrow window to institute some much needed reforms. We'll talk about that and whether he'll do it. And at the end of the program, Kathy Burns will join us for a conversation about covering up. Well, specifically about what do you do in a spring a shower turns into a snow shower. With me today, my guest, Dr. Charles Goldman. First item on the agenda is another word that starts with C, uh, climate. <laughs> We're going to be talking about climate change and um, Biden's big plan. Uh, you know, is America back? I mean, is this, this is huge. This week, Biden and John Kerry, the uh, special climate envoy, convening a, a summit of 40 nations, an online summit of 40 nations, to advance an, an aggressive agenda on climate. This is um, surprising to me. And uh, I think to a lot of people, when we think about where Biden and other candidates, to some extent, stood on climate during the campaign, this is an aggressive move. And um, some would argue a much needed and long overdue move. Well, and the other interesting uh, part of this is that um, they've made direct overtures to China as part of this Zoom summit, um, to basically try to remove the issue of uh, unifying against climate change uh, from the obvious increasing political slash military tensions that are coming up between mm. the United States and China. Right. And uh, what's intriguing about that, of course, is that how this is being portrayed on the conservative media uh, is that Biden is being soft on China, um, while at the same time, it, I think it, it's been really an interesting move to say to China, look, we are competitors at this point in time, right. but we all have a common fate that's you know going to the end point of unaddressed climate change that maybe we can put that aside, at least for these measures. Yeah. And I, you know, I don't. I assume I'm not sure the entire list of the 40 countries invited to be a part of the summit, but I, I assume China will be there. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And again, that's that's huge because China is what one sixth of the world's population, a little bit more than that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we need to get uh, India needs to get on board as well, and certainly the European Union has been making some, but not uh, not all the strides that it needs. Uh, but you know, I, there's some. Um, there, there, there's one element. I mean, Biden has received a lot of pressure from a lot of directions to move in this direction. I mean, one, one, one source of uh, pressure was from Iowans who were uh, out there at events all over the state demanding that he take a stronger stand on climate change. And uh, he hadn't. Uh, there were various groups, Bold Iowa, Greenpeace, that rated him fairly low in terms of his uh, his. Uh, his uh, stance on climate, and that's really moved forward. So I don't doubt that pressure from the grassroots has been part of it, but I think another source of pressure, hard to say this, big corporations. Yeah. I mean, I mean they're, they're leaning on him. They're really leaning on him. Well, and um, you also saw that if, if in the polling around the election, um, Republicans, this, is, this was one area where, although it was portrayed by the mass media as that the Republicans were uniformly, uh, de you know, debunkers of climate change uh, predictions, uh, particularly among younger Republicans, they actually felt that um, the Democratic position on climate change was perfectly valid, mm -hmm. and they did not go along with their 
you know, paid deniers among the Republican Party. Um, and of course, the paid deniers were subsidized by the fossil fuel industry. Uh, and, you know, they aren't, they, as far as I know, they are not among the 300 corporations <laughs> that have asked Biden to take an even stronger stand on climate. I mean, they're asking him, they're saying, look, we need to reduce emissions, greenhouse gas emissions, by 50% by 2030. You know, and, and that's, that's very aggressive, very ambitious. I mean, it's ambitious, coming- but, you know, I think you need to, to be sobered up a little bit in terms of how much— I'm drinking water. Well, I'm, no, I'm, I'm simply saying <laughs> that, you know, during the year of pandemic with the shutdown uh, of the major economies for varying periods of time, emissions only dropped 9%. Yeah. Well, that's what, that's what these companies are saying. As we come out of COVID and return to, quote, normal, we need to be really, really serious about being aggressive really soon. I mean, look who's on board. Google, Apple— Microsoft. Okay, maybe no surprise that big tech is on board, but Walmart, McDonald's, destroyer of Amazon rainforest. I mean, <laughs> Starbucks, mm-hmm. Coca-Cola, and one of the biggest surprises for me, Pacific Gas and Electric. I mean, that's a big utility company. They're on board pressuring the president to do more. So maybe that's part of where he's coming from on this uh, ambitious climate agenda is not just from the base, progressives, Iowans, New Hampshire people, uh, and then, you know, the Nevadans, but also from uh, from big companies. Well, we're also reaching a real uh, tipping point here as to whether cutting emissions is going to be enough. Good, and there's now question. a lot of discussion about do we need to actively manage the atmosphere in such a way to cool the earth off? Well, uh, that's just a can of worms. You're well, really, no, even the people, even the people who are doing the experimentation, say it's a can of worms. Yeah, no one's, no one's denying that. But the point is, is that if, if essentially, when you don't have traffic in major cities in the United States for months at a time, and emissions only drop nine percent, the problem is that we, we are because of what's already gone, gone antecedent to this. There's an exponential leap in emissions that are non-carbon dioxide emissions that are being caused by warming in the Arctic and other places. Right. That's Those releasing carbon. Works. That's right. That's releasing yeah. carbon that's been stored in the Earth for millennia. Mm-hmm. And so we may be reaching the point where even if we tame the industrial emissions, or I should say the emissions of the industrial and post-industrial age, it may not be enough right. to and, slow down yeah. warming. And then what? Well then, and then, 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 well then, you then you have the choice of either trying to mitigate the changes and the damage of the warming of the earth, which we've, is going to be difficult we've got and to do expensive. That. We've got to do that. Well, that's going to be hugely expensive. But we've got to do it. Well, or you try to prevent any further damage, which is the idea of. I'd say we have know. to do both. Well, I, I think we have to do both. We may even have to go the third path, which is we may have to do some sort of engineering of the atmosphere yeah. at some point. That makes me really nervous. I mean, I, I suppose that would be your last-ditch possibility, but gosh, uh, who knows what what Pandora's box will open if we start messing with big-scale big scale geoengineering systems. I mean, that's just—I don't know where that goes. <laughs> well, well, Talk about feedback loops. True. I mean, and, and again, the people who are involved in it say they're not comfortable yet that they can predict the outcomes of, of that kind of geoengineering. And some of the people involved in it have money to be made by instituting some of those, uh, those uh, geoengineering schemes. Well, if, if, you're, if, if your argument is, is that it's mostly driven by the oil and gas companies that want to be able to say we can ameliorate the damage we have done and not end up with stranded resources sitting in the earth— that's a part of it, but it's not – I don't believe that's really the driving factor here. Well, um, hard to know. But again, uh, I think it's really encouraging to see Biden and China and other countries beginning to aggressively move forward on this, to have corporations saying, hey, you need to do even more. Um, and again, I, I praise the, uh, every single person in this country who has made climate a priority for the last several decades – you know, they, they need to accept some credit for this as well. It isn't just the top-down or big-name influencers that have the, uh, have the impact. It's all those little, you know, little statements and actions and nicks and, and cuts that, that finally wear the monster down and, and, uh, and make it see the reality it has to face. That's my contention. Um, yeah, I mean, I, 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 w- I would agree that the larger corporations are 
beginning to realize it's going to be bad business. <laughs> really bad business. Because it, it, it is driving their costs up. It is also going to damage their physical infrastructure. And um, yeah. and perhaps, you know, the, I, I, things don't get done in a capitalist society that don't in some way aren't about money. <laughs> And um, well, that, that's an argument for discussing whether or not we should move beyond a capitalist economy, at least yeah. the current one we have, which is really more of a socialist type, you know, capitalism. Yeah, I mean, what we have now is really socialism for the for the rich and powerful, and correct, and uh, and a free market for the rest of us with uh, with pretty severe regulation sometimes. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I'd have to agree with that. We have crony capitalism. That's correct. And that is a great segue into our next segment, Charles. Uh, we're going to take a short break here, folks. Uh, but when we come back, we're going to be talking about corporations again. This time, maybe not quite so favorably as the first segment. We want to talk about the corporate tax structure and whether or not it's not time to give that a look and maybe raise it up. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Market and Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store, centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market. Good food, great community. Architecture by Synthesis provides planning, design, and design-build services for high-performance, low-maintenance affordable homes and buildings. Owner Mark Klipsham has been doing this work for over 30 years on a wide variety of project types, specializing in super-insulated structures made from, wait for it, grain bins. Yup, with the right experience, tools, and creativity, so much is possible. View images of projects and learn more at architecturebysynthesis.com. That's architecturebysynthesis.com. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Ed Fallon with you here. Dr. Charles Goldman, my guest today. Later in the program, Kathy Burns is joining us. Thanks to our business partners and our nonprofit sponsors, including Bold Iowa, building rural urban coalitions to address the climate crisis, to prevent uh, the abuse of eminent domain, and also to protect Iowa's soil, air, and water. Learn more at boldiowa.com. Thanks also to Birds and Bees Urban Farm, offering classes on how to turn your yard into dinner. You can get more information about classes and workshops at birdsbeesurbanfarm.org. Okay, Charles Goldman with us today, folks. Um, we're going to be uh, later in the program looking at the um, coronavirus, talking about the courts. We'll be talking about um, what do you do in a spring snowstorm. We'll be talking with Kathy Burns about that. Charles doesn't know anything about snowstorms. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that's not true. Having lived in West Virginia where you get some oh, rest yeah, up out yeah. there. Yeah. There, were, there were storms there. Yeah. All right, so hey, um, corporations. Uh, they have for a long time gotten away with uh, paying little and less and less all the time. And we've seen it uh, impacted, impacting their profits, which have gone up more and more all the time, even as income inequality has gotten worse. It looks like President Biden might actually be taking seriously the need to address the corporate tax structure. What do you think? Well, I, I think, you know, since the... Uh landmark legislation that the Biden administration is going to try to get through, which is the, the infrastructure bill. Which includes climate. Right. Is, is, it's clear that it has to be funded somehow. Because um, we're talking, what, $3 trillion, $2.8 trillion? It's some change. <laughs> and, and we do know that the fact of the matter is that, for instance, last year, 55 corporations that made a total of $40.5 billion in profits paid how much in federal taxes? Zip. Zero. Zero. That's correct. Not a, and that includes what, Archer Daniels, Midland, uh, FedEx, Hewlett Packard, um, Nike. Mm -hmm. Was is Amazon on that list? Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's just that's unconscionable. Right. And and the other thing is that that's been the pattern for many years going back. And um, the GDP during let's say from seventeen until twenty one grew about three percent. Uh, as did the profits of corporations, which actually exceeded that. 
And in terms of how much was given back to the workers from GDP growth was about 33% less than mm. the growth of GDP. So for all the people out there, and we've talked about this before, um, basically productivity and uh, has been going up steadily since the Reagan era and wages in real money, you know, based back on money back in the 70s, um, is flatlined. Yeah. So they're not paying their workers more. The money corporations aggregate now does one of two things and one thing predominantly, and that is buy stock back to enrich their owners, and then a small portion of the money goes back to the enterprise to uh, update infrastructure and but, other things. Of course, those of us who have been around a while and following politics for decades remember the uh, arguments back in um, the 80s and 90s that trickle-down economics were the way to go. You, you put money up here at the top and everybody will benefit. There'll be more jobs, uh, better paying jobs, better quality of life. Uh, Tom Harkin, former U.S. Senator from Iowa, had a great way to describe that. He's saying, saying that you um, that you can, uh, you want to help the sparrows by giving the uh, the horse an extra helping of oats. That's basically trickle-down economics. Mm. <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't pan out very well. And but you know you don't hear many people uh, praising it anymore. I mean I don't. I mean it looks like the argument has shifted to we need to give these corporations tax cuts or handouts because it'll trickle down. The argument now is we need to give these corporations uh, we need we need to make sure their taxes remain low. We don't need to raise taxes on them because otherwise they'll just pass it on to the consumer. Their customers will be hit with the additional cost. That's the argument I'm hearing. Uh well, I would I would argue that that is what capitalism is supposed to be doing. And if they do pass it on to the consumer and prices go up, then the consumer has to make choices cuz let's you know this this is the dark side of 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 your discussion of uh you know climate change. Nobody wants to reduce their consumption as part of reducing emissions. Mm -hmm. They want technology to reduce emissions, right? But the fact of the matter is, is if prices went up, people would buy less. They'd have to make choices. Tough luck. You know, and I'm not talking about necessarily the food that people are eating, which is malpriced well, <laughs> anyway because of what we favor. Well, the, far, the farmers get such a small, tiny portion of the, of the uh, food expense anyhow. Well, no, but the, but the point is, well, first of all, farmers hardly exist anymore. It's agribusiness at this point. Uh, fortunately, you're, fortunately, you're wrong because more and more f small farmers are beginning to uh, find niches in the market. But I, I hear niches, what I hear, niches. But, but those niches are growing. And actually, they're growing to the point where the, the big corporate interests are starting to pay attention and trying to find ways of... Uh, Making it harder for those folks to have a go at it, and um, you know, trying to def defend their turf. Right. So no. Well, because they're beginning to realize that if they don't do that, they're not going to own their land anymore. Because you know, at this point, agribusiness owns a plurality of the agricultural land in the United States. Yeah, and you've I got mean, and you've got big investors like Bill Gates. Well, Bill Gates owns almost ten percent of of the present <laughs> arable land in the United States. And, and you've got you've got foreign corporations owning farmland the size of Kentucky. Right. So I mean, let's know? let's deal with agriculture in the same way you want to deal with oil and gas. It, it's basically a, a a corporate enterprise. All I'm saying is mm -hmm. is that um, first of all, they wouldn't have to raise their prices. They would have to change their incentives. If the incentives of the corporation are only to enrich their shareholders, you know, when they when that's they, the current model, right? When they well, yeah. that it, it is and it isn't. I mean, you know, they've recently come out and talked about how there's a response, social responsibility, which exceeds that to the shareholders. I mean, if you want to tear down statues, go to the University of Chicago, and if they have a statue of Milton Friedman up, they should tear that down <laughs> along with the Confederate, you know, the Confederate generals. You heard it here, folks. Charles Goldman <laughs> is going to Chicago to tear down the, the, the statue. Well, no, the, you know, people, people, people behave as though the theory of the 70s that led to Reaganism was somehow the way corporations were, uh, you know, in time immemorial. In fact, corporations were led by managers who indeed at yeah. one time have responsibility to the community they were in. Right. And did not see the you know self-aggrandizing, uh, you know having to drive the stock price up every quarter because they own so much of the stock as the point of the corporation. Yeah. Well, no, yeah. I agree with you. Corporate taxes and let's look, what, well, they, what do they we used to be do? a lot higher. Right. What do we need to do? Corporate taxes <laughs> need to be higher. And even with corporate taxes at twenty-one percent, look how many corporations didn't pay taxes at all. Mm -hmm. You need an you need an alternative minimum tax on corporations, just like you have on individuals. That is. If you've somehow managed 
to reduce your tax liability to zero, you still pay at least a minimum tax. You got to get rid of situations where corporations can pay billions in penalties and write that off as a business expense, which means that when they're repaying the taxpayer for the damage they do, the taxpayer is subsidizing that repayment. So, so here's, a, here's a question to, to tie this conversation in with the previous conversation about climate. The corporations, that 300 companies and investors that came on board and said, Biden, you got to do more on climate. Are they also going to, are these 300 companies also going to be willing to say, President Biden, we support you increasing the corporate tax to do what we've asked you to do to address the climate crisis? Some of them have come out and said that already. I mean, Bezos came out and said it already. You know, as far as Amazon's concerned, Gates said it. So I don't know at this point about what their position on corporate tax. I can tell you the other part of this, which you're, you're ignoring. <laughs> the, 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 point of the, the point of the fact is the United States in general has the lowest taxes of any social democracy in the world at this point. And right. that includes on people who are not in the top 1%. Right. Because everybody thinks that you're going to pay for a $3 trillion project with soaking the corporations and soaking the rich. There's not enough money around to do that. And the social democracies in other places, you know, Denmark, Canada, places like that, Australia, they start taxing at 30 and 40 percent marginal rates in the high five-digit incomes or the low, you know, six-digit incomes. Okay. Okay. Now, I, I don't. Well, yeah, I'm not ignoring that. Uh, I just think if that's going to be a harder sell. Well, uh, at what point do people? But, oh, it's a harder sell, right? It's always I, I, easy I, I, to say I'm going to take money from somebody else, but you. <laughs> <laughs> to right. to affect a change, but at what point are we responsible yeah. to the infrastructure and other things? You know, that's right. Americans are notorious for, I want to pay for what I want to pay for. And I want somebody else to pay for what I need. You know, and I and someone needs to have the courage to stand up in front of the American population and say, your taxes are the lowest in the in the world. Vote Goldman. Yeah. <laughs> you know, what, it, are, what are you willing to kick in? And we've, we've talked about this before. When they ask people how much more on an electric bill are you willing to pay to mitigate the, you know, pollution that goes with coal burning or, you know, not having a place to get rid of nuclear fuel and everything mm -hmm. else, you know, they'll pay $10 more a month. That's not going to do it. Yeah. You know, so... Well, I, I, I think your, your point is well taken that there may be... Uh, you know, I, I think the, the middle class and certainly... Well, who is the middle class? Uh, I, I don't... It, it's hard to say where to draw the threshold. Exactly. It depends on where you live and what your expenses are. But, you know, okay, you, you said um, upper five digits, so people making 80,000, 90,000, mm -hmm. lower six-digit incomes. Yeah, I, I don't think there should be... no There should be no reason why, why folks in those income brackets shouldn't be able to pay a little bit more in taxes to help address some of the problems, some of the big holes we've dug ourselves into. I don't think that's, that may be harder to sell than just saying tax these big corporations. Anything, anything is going to be hard to sell when you've got, you know, folks like Sean Hannity yelling about any level of taxation at all. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that is, and, and of course, you've got people who are willing to, to buy that too, but it's, uh, you know, obviously we've, I think more and more people realize we've got problems, we've got to address them. How are we going to do it? Uh, hey, Charles, i got to run to a quick break here. Uh, when we come back, folks, uh, Charles Goldman with us. Um, we're going to be talking about the coronavirus. Um, get over I'm it. I'm ready. You're ready. He's ready. <laughs> <laughs> All right, folks, back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. With over 5,000 items to choose from, you can order groceries online, and the Gateway team will bring them to you curbside. It's a convenient way to shop from anywhere and save time. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week with catering and floral services also available. Visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. Noche is the premier home in Des Moines for jazz and cabaret. With its prime downtown location, Noche attracts both national acts and local favorites, including Max Wellman, Gina Gedler, and Tina Haas Finley. You can also enjoy the progressive sounds of one of America's longest-running jazz orchestras, the Des Moines Big Band. Noche offers a world-class cocktail bar and serves a variety of small plates, too. Noche, on Walnut Street, south of the Sculpture Park in downtown Des Moines.
Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. This is Ed Fallon, your host, uh, Charles Goldman, with me this afternoon. Uh, thanks to our local business partners, including Architecture by Synthesis, where Mark Klipsham offers planning, design, and design-build services for high-performance, low-maintenance homes and buildings. Architecture by Synthesis specializes in environmentally friendly designs, including highly insulated structures made from grain bins. That's Architecture by Synthesis. All right, so the coronavirus. I want to say get over it. <laughs> but first, I want to share, and I will explain that, but I want to share this um, comment from, uh, in, in David Leonhardt's um, column in the New York Times. Uh, he references uh, Guido Calabresi. He's a, a federal judge and Yale law professor. And he, uh, he invented a little fable, this is like many years ago, I think, that he has been telling his law students he says, imagine a god coming forth to offer society a wondrous invention that would improve everyday life in almost every way. It would allow people to spend more time with friends and family, see new places, and do jobs they otherwise could not do. But it would also come with a high cost. In exchange for bestowing this invention on society, the god would choose 1,000 young men and women and strike them dead. So Calabrese then likes to ask his students, would you take the deal? And almost invariably, the students say no. The professor then delivers the fable's lesson. What's the difference between this and the automobile? <laughs> Which I think is a brilliant little uh, metaphor. And it ties in with our conversation about the coronavirus. That's Dr. Right. Charles Goldman. Who's still wearing his mask. Who's still wearing his mask. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it, the the discussion that ensues in the article attributes the reason that we don't see the risk of driving an automobile um, compared to, let's say, flying, getting on a plane, right. or in, in this theoretical setup, uh, why we see it in a different way. And, and, and the, the first thing that uh, Leonard sort of proffers is that it's novelty. That is... We've already assimilated our use of the automobile, even in being a rite it's of passage. It's, it's familiar. It's, 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 right. It's familiar, and it's become essentially a rite of passage, well, yeah, and it's, it's a sign of, of freedom. And it's, and it's almost, it's almost essential. It's almost a way of life. You Correct. You can't get by without it. Right. And, well, and some of us do. Coronavirus, like this theoretical invention, has novelty. Right. Um, I, I would argue that there are other factors in the way humans think about risk. Um, first of all, it's the nature of the death that they associate with coronavirus or with falling from 30,000 feet at some sort of like Mach 2 speed that it's just not a, a very pleasant way of thinking about how you're going to go. Also, I don't, I don't know. For me, I think falling from 30,000 feet would be a blast <laughs> well, until that last until moment. Until that last ground, moment. Yeah. Right. You, usually you're dead before you get there. But oh, okay. Um, or getting ripped apart by a great white seems to be another one that people have. Well, again, an event that's very rare. Well, that's because that's, Jaws ruined the whole death by shark experience. It, absolutely. <laughs> so, so the point is, is it's the way you view the actual your actual physical death, and the other part of driving your car is you feel that you are in control of the situation. When you're flying on a plane, yeah. you're in the hands of of basically a computer and, and, a lot of the time. And, and of course, 40,000 times a year. I mean, that, that metaphor, that one problem with, uh, with, the, uh, with the professor's metaphor is that he says, what, that this god would take 1,000 young people? Mm -hmm. Well, it's 40,000 people who die in America every year because of car, car, car fatalities. Yeah, no, I mean... 40,000. But, but <laughs> again, it, it, it's, it's the idea of control. Right, And that sure. you, you can control but, your fate by the way you drive, the, by wearing a seatbelt, by having... Sure, and there's know, some truth a, to that. There is some truth to that. Yeah. But but it's also about about um, novelty. And again, this is the coronavirus is new. And here's here's a, what fascinates me is that people who have been vaccinated are still acting in a level of caution that is not consistent with what the current scientific model is saying. Okay, so I've been vaccinated, but I still wear a mask. Right. And actually, that's because number one, we know it's not a hundred percent protection. Well, number two, the point is that. What's the cost of wearing a mask to maybe get uh, more protection? And at the same time, what am I trying to avoid? I'm trying to avoid the unlikely occurrence that I would die from this and die alone 
you know, choking for air, even on a ventilator in somebody's intensive care unit. Kind of like the same way you'd go if you were eaten by a great white shark. Well, probably, be, yeah, it'd be quicker to go by great white shark. Um, and the second is that, um, and you and I talked about this recently, it's not just a matter of dying from COVID. It's a matter of being disabled for the rest of right. your life from COVID. But your, but your chances of getting COVID with a, with a, once you've had the vaccine. Uh, here's also from uh, Leonhard's uh, a column. He says, quote, a car trip is a bigger threat to you and others than COVID. Mm -hmm. About 100 Americans are likely to die in car crashes today. Today, 100 Americans likely to die of car crashes. The new federal data suggests that either zero or one vaccinated person will die today from COVID. Well, what I can tell you is that <laughs> I can tell you a lot of physicians are, are talking about that whatever the situation with COVID is, they're probably going to wear masks during the winter in the hospital. All the time. Right. Why? Not so much. Well, because, well, because the, of the flu, it, because of influenza. Okay. Which, which but, kills how many, how many people? It varies from year to year. But, but a, lot, a, lot, is, a lot less than 100 people a day, as we see with cars. Um, during the season, influenza will, or RSV or other respiratory viruses will kill more people in a day than car accidents, particularly in the winter when car accidents are not as frequent. So my point <sighs> is that, yes, I understand what you're saying. And, you know, that was the argument being made in a lot of states about getting rid of mass mandates, and including, you know, you've been critical of the way Iowa's handled this. Well, yeah, for sure. And, I, and I've been very, very supportive of wearing masks, very mm. supportive of social distancing. We've been very cautious. But at one point you say, okay, uh, the vaccine is pretty much eliminated for all intents and purposes, the risk of contracting COVID, the risk of, uh, of, uh, of infecting someone else. At what point do we start behaving like we've actually achieved that, uh, that goal? Well, when we know that's true. I mean, no, I we mean all, and the we, science is saying it's true, right? No, the science is saying in a select group of people who volunteered for vaccination, that's, that's been the result so far. What about if you're a higher risk person? You know, these these groups don't weren't representative as many times in, in medical studies. They don't represent the communities or the general population. There were more more. There was a surfeit of white people in these in most of these trials. Also, people who tend to go into trials tend to be more educated in better health because they have access to more economic resources or they need the money. No. No? No. <laughs> well, I know people who volunteered for such trials because they were hard up for cash. Yeah. Okay, well. But that's, that's actually was not the case with okay. these trials. Okay. And so all I'm saying is I don't think any, anybody feels assured for, you know, going forward where things well, are going to end up, especially with the variants. Well, and so. and that, that's, that's, that's absolutely the most truest thing we could say is that everything is so new about this. Right. I mean, this is, this is that we we're into just a little over a year of our experience with the coronavirus. It's already throwing us some curveballs, mm -hmm. uh, mutating in various different ways from various parts of the world. Uh, we still don't know what kind of, I mean, I think, what, about 10% of the population experienced long-term effects? And some of those could be weeks, some months? Maybe, or more. I or mean, more. It, I mean it depends on what you're looking for. I mean, you know, they, they have had series where they've done ultra, uh, echoes on every person with COVID and found that 40% of them have significantly compromised heart function. How many of those people are going to be that way the rest of their lives? And the problem is we don't know what the what the number should be because right. we never did it with people okay. who got influenza. Yeah. And again, that's all. Those are all great questions, uh, important things to continue to study, to research. But the bottom line is, everything we're seeing about vaccines indicates. I mean, again, again, despite some little you know snags like blood clots with the Johnson and Johnson uh, uh, vaccine, everything points to successful protection against getting COVID in the future. So at what point? At least this COVID variant at this time, because we still don't know the issue of boosters need, being needed. Right. We also, you know, this is this is a natural experiment that's being run right. on millions of people. I don't have a problem with that because they did what they needed to do to at least assure reasonably that this was a safe endeavor. So it sounds like you might be disagreeing with, uh, with Leonhard here. Uh, I mean, he may... He concludes his column by uh, citing an example of a friend who goes out, hesitant to go out and meet with a friend face-to-face -face over coffee, you know, without having to wear a mask, does it, comes back and just feels this tremendous sense of relief and, and, and normalcy return to him. Is that, I mean, that, that seems to be Leonard's 
conclusion as I read it. Mm-hmm. Do you have a different sense of where he ends with this? And if you agree with my assessment of it, do you agree with do you agree with him? No, I mean I, I I'm I'm not disagreeing with it. It's just that I, I'm not convinced that um, we can just go back to the way it was at this time, because something else is going on here. Only let's say in, let's say in Iowa, a quarter of the population is vaccinated, and yet you're seeing numbers that are pretty low. What else is going on? Is it true that the virulence of the virus has changed, or is it simply that enough people got infected with right. the first time around? Right that we've got a lot of natural immunity in the community. And that may well be the case. Probably a combination. Um, it's yeah. undoubtedly a combination. Yeah. yeah. All right. Anyway, well, we'll... Uh, <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, Charles, thank you, for, uh, thank you for joining us with that conversation. Um, stick around. We're going to talk a little bit more about... Um, we're going to switch back to uh, a federal perspective here, the courts. Um, a lot has happened with the courts in the past uh, decade or less. And Joe Biden is seen as having a narrow window to do something involving instituting some pretty, you know, pretty desperately needed reforms, uh, according to some analysts. We'll be back in a minute to talk about that on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store, centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. At Story County Veterinary Clinic, Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant. Well, if you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's clients stick with her year after year because they know she'll do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Kim a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766. Back to the Fallon Forum. Thanks to the local businesses and nonprofits who helped make this program possible. Uh, thank you to Noche Jazz and Cabaret, featuring both national acts and local favorites, including Max Wellman, Gina Gedler, and Tina Haas Finley. Noche also has a cocktail bar and serves a variety of small plates. You can check out Noche Jazz and Cabaret on their Facebook page and on their website. That's Noche Jazz and Cabaret. All right, welcome back to the program again with me today, Dr. Charles Goldman. And uh, we're going to talk now about the courts. Um, you know, there's the expression that's become very popular is court packing. And this is, a, of course, a reference to concerns that President Biden and Congress might might change the way the Supreme Court in particular is, uh, is um, chosen, how big it is, uh, how long the different terms last. Um, you could really argue that the court has already been packed, <laughs> packed pretty, uh, pretty tightly with a very uh, ideological right uh, by President Trump and by certain, you know, certain of his successors, and also that it's been packed by actions that um, involved um, preventing President Obama from his rightful opportunity to appoint um, Justice Garland. Well, it was more than just Justice Garland. I mean, um, when. President Obama left office after eight years. There were 108 vacancies on the federal judiciary, which he— 108. 108. Mm. And he was unable to appoint anyone to those positions because of the tactics of the Senate Republicans led by Mitch McConnell. Well, Mitch McConnell and Chuck Grassley, the uh, chair of the judiciary Mm. at the time. Right. Yeah, and you know the the double standard that uh, Republicans have uh, embraced on this is is kind of mind-boggling. It's so logically indefensible. It's almost um, hard to know how to how to how to um, rebut it. <laughs> but uh, but now we see, of course, they pushing back against any efforts to try to change the structure of the court to again try to make it more balanced. Right. Let's let's be clear. Uh, Article three of the Constitution clearly allows Congress and actually mandates Congress to make determination of the size 
and the jurisdiction of any, quote, inferior court. An inferior court means any court, the federal district court, federal court of appeals, that's any court below the Supreme Court. And we also know that the number of justices on the Supreme Court has changed multiple times over the history of the United States. It is not defined in the Constitution as nine, so that Congress basically controls the makeup of the federal courts. Right. What's become more important is that Congress no longer legislates in any meaningful way. <laughs> they simply make, you know, sort of vague laws if they make any law well, that, at all. That might be changing this uh, this time around. Well, perhaps. We'll see. we'll see. But it didn't happen under Obama. It really didn't happen under Bush. Well, but again, law in this country is made predominantly by the courts at this point. At this point, yeah. And that's really not how the... Uh, whole setup was intended to work. No, of course. They were supposed to be co-equal branches. And right. and remember that the Supreme Court usurped the right to uh, declare laws unconstitutional unto itself way back, you know, in uh, the John Marshall explain, days. Explain that. Well, the, the, the notion of judicial review by the Supreme Court was not written into the Constitution. Maybe it was not really the, totally the intent of the Federalists. You know, the, who who were the uh, you know the Federalist Papers as, as explaining what they were thinking at the time, but you know this this the right to declare laws unconstitutional was usurped many you know over almost two hundred years ago mm-hmm. by the Supreme Court. So again, it's not necessarily in the Constitution that this is supposed to be the role of the Supreme Court. But let's not concentrate on the Supreme Court because district court judges can negate law. And all you need is one district court judge to basically, you know, put a restraining order and y- your law is put in limbo until it's reviewed. And it may not be reviewed, re- that decision may not re- be reviewed for years. You know, what happened to the clean power plan of the Obama administration, you know, to get coal out of the mix for the most part? Yeah. That stayed stuck in the courts for the entirety of you know, his second term. And then along and came then Scott in, Pruitt. Yeah, right. <laughs> but, but the point was Scott Pruitt didn't have to do anything because yeah. it was already stuck in the courts. So my, my point here is that the Democrats only have assured themselves two years of control. Right. And here's one mistake that the court might make that uh, the court made previously under the Obama administration. That was, and you know, people love her, but Ruth Bader Ginsburg should have, should have um, stepped aside. She should have re- retired during the Obama administration. I'm wondering if Steve Breyer is going to make the same mistake. Um, again, you, you're concentrating on the Supreme Court, and well, okay. and we need you, that's my whole point. Is the Democrats need to play hardball, all right, and 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 stop with this nonsense that they're going to play by the rules. Okay, the Republicans spent all of Obama's term, preventing him from putting more liberal justices on the courts. And so we ended up with Trump appointing a quarter of the federal judiciary. Yeah. Almost all of them white men. Right. Okay. I'm not saying that diversity based on on skin color is, you know, the the measure of diversity. But it's a consideration. But it should be a consideration. So and you have too many former prosecutors as judges. You need you need criminal defense attorneys. You need people who didn't graduate from the Ivy League law schools. You need people. Uh, you need women. You need people who have worked for advocacy groups because right. you need to balance. That's really where the lack of diversity is. Yeah, it's not it's, just the easy, you know, saying it's, it's a bunch it, of it white is, men. It's not just white males. It's younger, far right wing uh, folks who are gonna. Tilt the, uh, the well. They system. have already tilted it. And they're going to do it for a long time. They flip two of the court of appeals. They can do it for a long time. Right. Well, they're they're lifetime appointments. Yeah. And this is why what I'm saying is is that among all these other things we're talking about, that the Biden administration needs to say we we probably can hold 51 votes to appoint these judges for life. Mm-hmm. They need to do that, and they need to do what McConnell did, which is another filibuster like. Uh, device hmm. that is part of our system is the blue slip, which is where any senator any from senator, any state, yeah, yeah. from the state where this district judge would be either placed yeah. or, the, or, or under whose jurisdiction that state would fall, can blue slip right. 
a judge's appointment. Now, first of all, the blue slips, we never find out about. It's uh, it's a secret process. In other words, okay. yeah, so we don't but know. But it basically holds it up. It, yeah, if yeah. you respect the blue slips. Well, right. guess what? We know the Republicans for the higher you know, uh, Court of Appeals did not respect the blue slips. Yeah. I would argue we shouldn't respect blue slips anyway. No, they should, we should get rid of that we along get rid with of the filibuster. Exactly. Along with the filibuster. Now, I don't know. If it, do you think any... Any substantive changes to the court system can happen without getting rid of the filibuster? Uh, yeah, because if you have 51 votes, if you can hold Kristen Cinema and, uh, you know, uh, what's his name, Manchin. From West Virginia. Yeah, yeah, from West Virginia, then you can expand the number of people, of uh, you can expand the size of the federal judiciary at will. And actually, the Republicans were making this argument. The Federalist Society was making this argument in 2017. We don't have enough judges. The number of cases— <laughs> But now the, they're against it. Well, now they'll be against it. But the point is, is that just right. for the reason that there's not enough judges to hear the cases that are coming before these courts, you need a bigger federal, federal judiciary. And I'm, I'm saying stop getting caught up in the Supreme Court and work to make the district—the population of district court judges higher as well as— Expand. Idaho is asking them to split the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, which would actually, you know, create a situation where Biden might be able to, you know, name a number of judges who are at least moderate left. So what about lifetime appointments? Time to do away with those? Well, absolutely. Yeah. And and that's that's part of the discussion in Washington right now. We, we, We need term limits on our representatives, and we need to stop the lifetime appointments of judges. But I think it's important not to have the—the the, the, the appointments need to be able to extend beyond the uh, beyond an election so that they aren't automatically, you know, subject to reappointment by a new administration, a new Congress. And that, that has been—suggestions have been made multiple times, yeah. which is to essentially set them up so they would rotate yeah. through each presidency at least fairly equally yeah. without people retiring or dying. Which would change, obviously, change the number of appointments. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, basically, we um, we've had we've court packing has been going on. Stop calling it court packing. No, no. That's, I, I, well, that's what it's being called. What's what's gone? What's it, it's? They have they have they have radically uh, restructured the makeup of the judiciary under the current system, and the only way to fix that is to alter the system. That's correct. And don't call that court backing. Right. Yeah. Because again, you're 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 That's it's fixing it's like the problem. The, it's like defund the police. It, it when you tell the person who's outside of you know the main the mainstream or isn't watching a, a panoply of news or whatever, they hear court packing and it's intrinsically sounds unfair. Right. And it, it is a, it, it, what we've done is what we've allowed Mitch McConnell basically to orchestrate is unfair. We can't undo it, but we can we can restructure the system as allowed by the Constitution, and hopefully come up with a create more a, a more a more uh, a more balanced. Uh, well, and the last thing I'll say: if you have any hope of having Democrats win any national office in the future, it this t- the time is now because though every one of those election you know suppression cases the, the vote suppression cases mm-hmm. is going to end up in federal court. Right. Yeah. And gerrymandering ought to end up there as well. <laughs> I mean, again, right. <laughs> with a with a more uh, with a more deliberate an- analysis than we had last time. Hey, folks, I got to take another short break. Uh, Charles, thank you so much for joining us. Well, it's good good to be here. When we come back, folks, Kathy Burns is going to join us. We're going to be talking about uh, what happens when a you know a beautiful spring day of sixty four degrees and sun turns into a snowstorm. What do you do with your garden then, huh? We'll be back in a minute to talk about that. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. With over 5,000 items to choose from, you can order groceries online and the Gateway team will bring them to you curbside. It's a convenient way to shop from anywhere and save time. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out and delivery service seven days a week with catering and floral services also available. Visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. Across the Des Moines metro, Ritual Cafe is known for its excellent fair trade coffee and fair trade tea. Ritual Cafe also serves breakfast and lunch and offers an entirely vegetarian menu. This unique venue is also known for its live music and displays of local artwork on the walls. 
Located on 13th Street between Locust and Grand in downtown Des Moines, Ritual Cafe is open six days a week. Make Ritual Cafe a daily part of your ritual. Welcome back to the Fallon Format. Fallon with you here, folks. Um, Thank you to Gateway Marketing Cafe. That's uh, my local grocery store, also Des Moines' uh, specialty food store. You can now order groceries online, and the Gateway team will bring them to you curbside. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week, with catering and floral services also available. Gateway Market, good food, great community. Thanks for uh, tuning in to today's program, and Thank you to Kathy Burns for now joining us. Kathy's uh, representing Birds and Bees Urban Farm. And typical to this segment of the program, we talk about food, urban farming, and related topics. And today we're going to talk about covering up. What does that mean? <laughs> well, it's April 19th. It is so, April 19th. So, of course, we're going to have a snow shower. Uh, <laughs> I no. thought we were beyond that. Oh, gosh. Well, and, and farming is is like gardening, is like a lot of things in life. It's kind of a crapshoot. So as much as you want to plan, you have to plan to have your plans go awry. Right. So um, Common Wisdom says uh, in Growing Zone 5 that you wait till May 15th to put right. sensitive crops outside. Did we do that? Well, <laughs> no, but, but rarely is it ever a problem. Right. It right. rarely is a problem. So I think it's worth taking a, sh- taking a chance. Yeah. Well, um, what we need to do, as soon as we're done taping this show, frankly, is uh, <laughs> go outside and get all the sheets and blankets that we've saved in a bin in the basement. The ones we're not using on our bed. Not using on our bed. And spread them out over the plants that we are not able to bring inside. And... That's why save all your sheets and blankets if you've got a space for that. Well, not all the plants. Some are going to be right, fine. Right, Um The brassicas are going to be fine Brussels sprouts, broccoli, uh, they'll be fine. Cabbage will be fine. The peas should be peas fine. Will, peas will love this. And onions, and we did double check. It seems yeah. onions are going to be just nice and chill good down, down to 20 low, degrees. Okay, I was going to say lower 20s. Yeah, that's I, even better. And leeks will be fine. Yep. But it's the artichokes. Um, they're Mediterranean. Mediterranean. So they're but, but yeah, it's the um, it's the, the new plants, the ones that are just starting to sprout. Mm-hmm. Carrots, beets. Beets. They're just too tender. Oh, and I have a few flowers. Our last uh, week's right. segment was on pollinator, or companion planting. And we've got some petunias and calendula and things out there trying to get growing. So I'll put a little cover on those. The hard thing to cover for us is going to be the strawberries because we're doing them (laughs) vertically, meaning we've got three lengths of gutter that we've attached to a seven-foot wall, stacked (laughs) one above the other. And uh, we don't want to take those back down and cover them with straw. So we're going to have to maybe roll up some blankets. I'm, I'm formulating a plan. I've got a plan. We'll, we'll, okay. we'll, we'll post photographs so we can figure this out. That sounds fantastic. And, and actually, maybe if, if we did figure it out, you're probably seeing photographs right now if you're watching this, uh, the, the uh, Facebook version of this conversation. Oh. Uh. <laughs> so I'm going to go out and shoot some more B-roll when we're done discussing <laughs> Maybe, maybe. If we, if we figure out how to, how to protect... Uh, uh, vertical strawberries from uh, from a freeze and freeze. It's not going to be terribly cold, 28 degrees, but that's mm-hmm. cold enough to cause some damage. I'm mostly concerned about blossoms. We've had a lot of uh, fruiting trees mm-hmm. already blossom, and this may be the case in your growing zone as well. But uh, that happens where you get yeah. they, they they blossom early, cold cold snap hits, and boom. You, you, that takes the fruit production way down, way, way down. We don't really have control over that as far as our Juneberry tree goes because there's, it's, we can't cover that. It's, it's bigger than the house. <laughs> but um, it, I don't think the blueberry shrubs have any blossoms yet. They're just starting yeah. to get their leaf started. But the strawberries do. The strawberries yeah. definitely do, and they, they have blossoms. So it's a good idea to save your old blankets. I mean, you know, blankets get holes in them. They get soiled, moths eat them, hang on to them because they'll always come in handy. We, we have about a dozen old mm-hmm. blankets and sheets that would not be suitable for any, uh, any bed, <laughs> but they work really well for a garden bed, and we will use all of them, I think, tonight. If we run short, we'll find the oldest sheets that we have up in the um, linen closet 
and use those and then just wash them when we're done. So another thing we <laughs> use old sheets for sometimes when they get really old and ratty, we tear them into strips and use them for ties. We, we tether mm. up crops with them if they're vining. Um, so many uses for old Well, things. you found a nice use for some of my old uh, tattered T-shirts this spring. The pea trellis. Uh, pea trellis, yeah. That was, um, <laughs> the, the, whole, the whole trellis is made from recycled materials. Mm-hmm. I'm impressed. Yeah, and uh, again, the peas should be fine in the weather tonight. Why don't you describe the trellis for us? Well, the trellis is two fence, uh, sorry, two porch railings that my sister took out from in front of their house when they were doing a little touch-up work on the front of the house. And they are maybe 10 feet long and then what whatever railing. They're about two, eight feet eight. long and I think, because they fit the bed, right? Oh, Yeah, they so do. then they're about three feet tall maybe? Yeah, three yeah. feet tall. So they're leaning into each other and then in the middle of those are some uh, fence posts that we pounded into the ground. And some some re, re-salvaged, some salvaged fence posts, right. repurposed. And then um, I strung in the, the railings of, of um, little here's, uh, here's vertical a, posts, then the, the tied T-shirts is strung right. in between that. My T-shirt's rising to a higher and better use than just... Uh, uh, covering my frame. Anyway, um, but yeah, there's so much you can do with uh, with with salvageable materials. And again, the, the same goes with blankets. Speaking yeah. of salvage material, again, in the cold weather, something that we did salvage was the wire frames from political and activist <laughs> signs. So some of them have a nice hoop shape, and they're like an upside-down U and we are going to put those over the artichoke bed and put the sheets over that because the artichokes are how tall now? They're only about a foot tall. They're still too They're tall still to put tall a to blanket be a, Yeah, you over. put a blanket on them and you're going to break some foliage. That's right. We can't I think the them. onions are small enough. They're, they're maybe six inches tall, but they're pliable enough where they won't be damaged by a blanket. Right. The artichokes yeah. are in trouble if we don't use them. And, and the other, the seedlings, the, the carrots and beets and beans, I forgot about the, <gasps> the green beans, mm-hmm. those are so small that, again, you just cover the bed and they should be just fine. But, yeah. Yeah. The, um, it, it's just there's there's so many things about um, every every week there's something. I mean, last week, well, well, currently now again, it's an aphid problem. Not on, not on the outdoor plants, but on the indoor, the, the plants we have uh, growing under grow lights. Uh, I wonder if the cold would kill the aphids. <laughs> well, no, they'll be, they'll, be, they'll be fine, but it might kill some of the plants. But uh, for some reason, they've taken a liking to eggplant. And so we're treating that with uh, neem oil, mm. with uh, spinosad. Uh, I've also been using insecticidal soap. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean... These are not harmful chemicals. No, no, they're all they're all natural products. So they're all organic certified, um, and they are they are doing their part to slaughter legions of uh, of angry aphids. Actually, might be not angry, but hungry aphids. <laughs> well, they'll be angry <laughs> when they get sprayed. Yeah, I was angry when I discovered them. <laughs> we think we know where it came from. We think it came from in the fall, the other end of the year, where we use blankets to cover plants. We were. We, we brought in two artichokes, hoping to, you know, get them out of the ground before the cold hit, hoping we could get them through the winter. And uh, I think what happened was there were, there were aphids on those plants, and they migrated. They migrated first to the new artichokes, and then they migrated okay. to the eggplant. Anyway, it's always something. The, the lesson, again, for us today is that it's okay if we put plants outside at risk of frost because... We knew that we could plant again or get some of them going again if we happened to get, you know, not catch a frost in time before it hurt some of those plants. We would rather have the plants be stronger and healthier coming into the season. Um, other people have other choices. Some people certainly, they just, they're just not going to go there. They're not going to put any plants outside except for cold-hardy ones like brassicas. Um, until May 15th. That's fine. Our preference is to get them out there, watch the temperature really closely, and be prepared to deal with it if we do get a drop in temp. Yeah. I mean, to, to give you an idea of how early we plant in Zone 5, uh, we planted our onions on on March 21st. Mm-hmm. That's uh, two weeks ago, uh, two months ago. Sorry, what, what am I saying? A month ago. <laughs> I, suddenly, I suddenly fast-forwarded to May. It's a month ago, but still, I mean, I, we like giving them that head start. They, uh, with onions, you want, you want to get as much foliage growth as possible. Every onion leaf 
it, it leads to a, a, a layer of onion bulb. And when you watch Shrek, you understand how important <laughs> all those layers are. So we are. want them to get it. Want the, I mean, by the time we planted them, the root balls were already, you know, pretty, pretty. I mean, they, they were pretty well established. So hopefully, uh, you know, this extra time in the ground is going to give them a nice jump. And then once the weather really starts taking off, hopefully after this two-day cold snap, they'll really take off. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we planted those in uh, March 21st, and then we planted uh, carrots on April 2nd. You're consulting the massive spreadsheet that you've really (laughs) done a great job putting together for our record-keeping purposes. So we need to keep track of this year to year. Yeah, of course, that was the day we planted our potatoes as well, which are not up yet, which is fine. I mean, actually, I'm really, really glad they're not up yet. But uh, but that usually, again, Good Friday always works for planting planting potatoes. And it did not let us down this year, despite the fact that we're getting this two-day cold snap. So... I'm excited to see them come up, and I'm more excited to eat them. <laughs> yeah. Hey, well, thanks for uh, joining us, Kathy. Uh, folks, we've been talking with Kathy Birds of Birds and Bees Urban Farm. Uh, thanks to our guests today, uh, Kathy, as well as Charles Goldman. And thanks to our business partners, Gateway Marketing Cafe, Architecture by Synthesis, Story County Veterinary Clinic, Noche Jazz and Cabaret, and our nonprofit partners as well, Bold Iowa and Birds and Bees Urban Farm. And thanks to Brother Trucker for providing the bumper music for this program. Uh, Thank you to our production squad of Sherry Herdina and Kathy Burns. Please subscribe to the Fallon Forum on Stitcher or uh, Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform. Help us grow this program. Uh, You can also follow us on Facebook and uh, sign up for my weekly blog on the Fallon Forum website. Help us to continue to provide the provocative, cutting-edge, alternative to the the hateful voices on some of the big stations. Again, this is Ed Fallon thanking you for joining the Fallon Forum.